God, we just pray that you'll do great and mighty things in us and through us and among us. Continue to build us as community. Continue to change us so that we can go out and change our community and our world. And Father, we thank you that the world will declare one day that you are the only true and living God and the great God in Jesus' name. We declare it right now because we know you and we bless you. Now let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight because you, O Lord, are our strength and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here for this session. Change, transform our lives so that we can be better men, husbands, fathers, leaders in our community. Father, whether we operate in the family space, in sacred space, in the marketplace, cyberspace, Father, change us and we bless you for it now. In Jesus' name, all of God's men said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, would you look at the man next to you and say, We serve a great God. Amen in Jesus' name. Good. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. How great, how great is our God. Amen. Some notes have been prepared for this session. You just have some notes on the table. They they look almost the same, but this one says sources of offense. Sources of offense for our afternoon session. And I would like to make this uh, session uh, kind of interactive and uh, uh, should be a little bit fun. I know after lunch, that's the tough session to do. Nobody likes to do these sessions. And so... uh, But here we are, and so let's make the best of it. And uh, so we're going to put you to work a little bit uh, in about the second half of this session, and we're going to go to work and look at some of the sources of offense. Uh, When we've been looking at this whole ideal of offense, we've uh, looked at its definition, and we said that offense is one of the greatest sources of church hurt. And um, when we look at church hurt, we found out that uh, church hurt is defined as Uh, Church hurt is perceived or actual or imagined damage, offense, pain, uh, disappointment experienced by a person, family, or group, by uh, a congregation, core leadership team, or leader of a faith community, church hurt. That definition came from uh, from my conversations with people throughout various states who told me that they weren't worshiping any place because of church hurt. I was just doing an examination because I found this statistic by Tom Rainier and as well as for George Barnard that said that the largest religious group that's growing right now in the United States is called nons, non-affiliated, non-attenders, people that seem to love Jesus, but they don't love his kids. They don't want to be connected with any congregation or any faith movement. And so we begin this whole journey on this whole idea of what does it mean to be a member of the kingdom of God and this maintain community. Now, one of the greatest enemies of the faith community is, uh, is offense. And offense is one of the greatest sources of church hurt. So we are warned about offense by Jesus in Matthew 18 and 7. And this is all review from this morning and where Jesus says, Woe to you because of offenses. Offenses must come. But woe to the man by whom offense comes. Now, sources of offense. Jesus experienced in his walk three levels of sources of offense. And I have those written out for us, one in Matthew 13, one in Matthew 15, and one in Matthew 24, just to kind of look at source of offense. 
Do you know that sometimes a community can get offended? A community. A community can get offended. And in Matthew 13 and verse 53, it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these things, these parables, he departed. And when he had come into his own country, he taught in them in the synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Now what's to have this man this wisdom? And these mighty works, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Josie and, uh, and uh, Simon and Judas? It says, and his uh, sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all this wisdom? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, a community got offended at Jesus. And when I looked and I tried to figure out, okay, what could be the community offense? First of all, they were offended because they thought they knew Jesus' history. And sometimes the people closer to you who know your history, many times when you begin to advance beyond the, uh, beyond the boundaries and the limitations they placed on your, on your life, they will get offended. Especially when people didn't expect you to amount to much. And so they were offended because he was going way beyond their perceived boundaries and limitations they placed on their life. Several books and articles have been written on the fact that they just got too familiar with Jesus. And the sin of familiarity, sometimes you can, you can get so familiar with people that you can't receive anything from those people. They had gotten so familiar with Jesus, believing that Mary and Joseph and brothers and sisters out of that family had been born. that They said, we know this guy. And we don't know how he's able to teach what he's teaching and do what he is doing. And so they got offended. Let me tell you the basis of offense also, because sometimes when you have a certain background in a certain region and people are familiar with you, they know your history and their family. They just don't expect you to be an achiever. And they become offended when you become who you were born to be. I remember when I first started traveling as an apostle to various nations ministering to emerging leaders in various nations. I've ministered now in about 25 different nations, ministering to leaders and men in those nations. And I never will forget coming home one Sunday after being gone for two Sundays in a row. And a fellow said, where you been, Pastor? And I said, well, I just came back from Malaysia and from Indonesia. They're both Muslim countries. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. And uh, Malaysia is a Muslim republic. And uh, and he said, what are you doing on minister to Muslims? And I said, well, I received an invitation from some folks like the Paul did in Macedonia. And he said, come over here and help us. Can you come and help us? We listened to a videotape with you on with Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. And this guy said, well, who do you think you are that you can go over into a country and minister to Muslims? He said, why are you comparing yourself with uh, the Apostle Paul? And um, I looked at him and I just simply said, are you offended because I am becoming who I was born to be? And sometime when you become who you were born to be, people will get offended. 
because they have placed limitations and barriers and glass ceilings on your life. And when you break out of their limited view of who you are, they can get offended. When you read multiple accounts of when Jesus went back to his hometown, reread the Matthew 13 account. Here it says that he could not do miracles, uh, many mighty works because of their unbelief. Some say that he could not do many mighty works. He could not. Not that he would not, but he could not because of their unbelief. I wrote down this statement. Friends, I want you to know that when you escape the limitations that people place on you, sometimes they'll get offended. When you escape it, when you determine that you're not going to stay inside of the boundaries and the ceilings that people have placed on you, they can become offended. And friends, offense can lead to unbelief. Jesus was the same Jesus in Nazareth as he was in Capernaum, as he was in Cappadocia, as he was in all these other places. But hear me well, their, uh, their uh, offense turned into unbelief. They said, well, you can't believe anything that this fellow says and anything that they do, they could not receive from him. Jesus then uh, points out one of his ministries. He says, a prophet, that's what he calls himself, is not received in his own country. And many times when people are very familiar with you, it's very difficult for them to receive from you. It can become a source of offense, the community, because of familiarity, because of being familiar with you, because of uh, your history, and sometimes because of your own background. This is a whole community that got offended. Matthew 15, 12 is not a community, but it is this time a core leadership team, a leadership team, a core leadership team. First community, now a core leadership team. Matthew 15, verse number 12, it says, and they came to his disciples and they said, knoweth thou that the Pharisees were offended? And they came, then came his disciples and said unto him, knoweth thou that the Pharisees were offended? After they heard this saying, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a ditch. Here's a core leadership team that gets, uh, that gets uh, offended. And they get offended because Jesus is challenging some of their belief system and some of their theology. Listen. Their offense, where the previous group, their offense led to unbelief, this group, their offense led to spiritual blindness. They could not even see the gift of God that was in front of them. Previous group, offense led to unbelief. This group, offense led to spiritual blindness. Jesus compares him with the blind leading the blind. I heard Fred Price say one time, if the blind lead the blind, everybody's going to wind up in the toilet. And friends, here is everybody's going to wind up in the ditch. And friends, here their unbelief led there. And so this is core leadership team. And sometimes there can be core leaders that make an assessment of you and of your abilities, and they can become offended because you and I break outside of what their expectations are. Matthew 24:10. Sources of offense. Matthew 24:10 says, "Then so then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Jesus now talking about the last days. As he begins to talk about the last days, I find this fascinating. 
that he says, in the last days, many people are going to become offended. Okay? Many people. Okay, you need some notes here, brother? Okay, here's some over here. Okay. Good, thanks. <laughs> All right, good. So, many shall be offended. And he said, one of the marks of the last day is that it seems like offense is going to increase. So, folks are just going to find lots of things to be offenses from, offended by. And so, not only can communities be offensive, uh, offended, core leadership team can be offended, but now crowds can be offended. Crowds can be offended. Crowds can be offended. You can preach truth some places, and it can offend a whole bunch of folks. Somebody asked me the question one time. They invited me to a singles conference, a minister. I told them I wasn't single. I was married. They said, well, you've been single before. Come. And so I came, and I said, uh, okay, before I came out, so preparation, what do you want me to minister on? And they told me, we want you to minister on Christian dating uh, from the biblical perspective. Well, my first statement out of my mouth was, the Bible doesn't say anything about Christian dating. And some people got offended. I mean, they, they shut down. They said, what do you mean the Bible doesn't say anything about Christian dating? I said, well, most of the Bible's uh, marriages were arranged. I said, families got together and determined your daughter's going to marry my son or my son's going to marry your daughter. I said, so... Christian dating's not in the Bible. Well, they got this big conference together, and my first statement is, what you got your conference theme on, it ain't even in the Bible. <laughs> that whole crowd got offended. So my wife said, maybe you should embedded that statement later on in your speech and got them to like you a little bit. I've learned some things since that time, okay? But it took me a long time to get that crowd back. And so uh, my, my presentation then went that, well, maybe since it's not mentioned in the Bible, dating is not mentioned in the Bible, I said, maybe I can walk you from attraction to the altar. And that's what I begin to do. How do we behave as believers from attraction? He's, he's handsome, she's cute, to the altar, I say I do. Then they begin to get some buy-in. But I felt offense in that room when I started, especially from the coordinators. They went, And so a crowd can get offended. And sometimes it can be very innocent. And it can be also because, uh, because uh, someone wants to go down a certain track and you don't go down that track. And Jesus said in the last days, people sometimes will just find something to be offended by. Many will be offended. So in my list here, okay, a community can be offended. Core leadership teams can be offended. That was the Pharisees. And then crowds can be offended. And Jesus experienced offense from all. Now, in the community that we live in right now, uh, let's look at our faith community. And I'm going to look very global, and I said we're going to do some work so we can stay awake. Um, you see that grid I have on that page? Okay. This grid are the four uh, grids in the Western Church of Christianity right now. That grid. In the upper right-hand corner, you have the evangelical grid, then you have the Pentecostal charismatic grid on the lower uh, right-hand corner, uh, on the left-hand side, you have the liturgical grid, and in the upper right-hand corner, you have the uh, community justice grid. Everybody see those? All right. Let me give you some characteristics, because what I want to do is I want to help us in New England, as I've tried to help people in the Midwest, understand where the church is in the Western world in these four grids, and then also I want to help you to understand, secondly, offense that's happened out of those four grids. Because there are people that are offended in all four of those grids. 
And then finally, we want to wind up. We want to land uh, where what we can do to help people work their way through offense. Does that make sense? Y'all ready to go to work? All right. So we got the four grids, evangelical grids. The evangelicals have the microphone right now in the United States. They have the ear of the president. They have the ear of the White House. They have the ear of the court. They have the ear of the television. Uh, through 700 Club and TBN, evangelicals have that ear. There are four foundational theolo- theological foundations for evangelicalism. First of all, evangelicals believe in the authority of the word of God. They believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Evangelicals believe in a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And evangelicals believe in sharing your faith. Those four things. That's why I put those lines there so that you can write some in. Because some people say, well, what's an evangelical? Now, if you're in the world, uh, evangelicals, like if I go to Dominican Republic and Spanish, anyone who is a Christian is called an evangelical. But evangelicals in the Western world have four dynamic doctrines. First of all, they believe in the authority of the word of God. That's number one. Number two, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Authority of the word of God, exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Second of all, they're called evangelicals because they believe in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. So they believe in a personal uh, relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Personal more than communal faith they practice. And then finally, they believe in sharing their faith. That's why evangelicalism uh, is there because they believe in sharing their faith, being evangelistic, evangelical. That, those are the four foundations for evangelicals. Evangelicals would buy into those four foundational doctrines. Now, the evangelical church, of course, that whole language was made very popularized by uh, the late Dr. Billy Graham. Dr. Billy Graham became the, uh, one of the uh, forefront spokesmen for the evangelical movement and uh, as an evangelist. And he, teach, he taught, you know, John 3, 16, believe on Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved in your house. Uh, no, uh, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So John 3, 16 would be the cornerstone scripture for them. And so next to number one, you can write down John 3, 16. And that would be one of the cornerstones that you must be, John 3, you must be born again to be an evangelical. You believe in a born again experience. And Billy Graham preached born again all over the place. Um, We talk about evangelicals, of course, uh, Jerry Falwell as a major uh, evangelical spokesman was on the forefront. And he then began to take evangelicalism outside of the church and moved it into the marketplace uh, through what was called the moral majority. And so through the moral majority, he began to teach on, uh, you know, that we stand, that we are pro-life. He wanted to stop the LGBTQIA community. Uh, He wanted to make sure that there was godly character in public officials, godly character in public officials, godly character in public officials. And he also wanted to believe, uh, he also wanted there to be limited government, limited government. Get the government out of our affairs. Okay. Jerry Falwell died. Pat Robinson rose up. He's a major voice for evangelicalism right now. Okay. And so uh, where Jerry Falwell was pro-life, stopped the LBGTQIA community, godly character and, and, and public officials, and limited government. Pat Robinson's now, his emphasis for evangelicals is now, we want a strong military. His voice for evangelicalism is, we want a strong economy. His standpoint is that we still want limited government, but then also a strong point is that we want to control Supreme Court justices. 
That's the voice of the evangelical choice church right now. The voice of the evangelical church. And there's a wonderful book written on evangelicals and how they help shape America by Frances Fitzgerald. Frances Fitzgerald. I went to a lecture by her uh, as she did. Uh, she was a member of Thomas Rhodes Baptist Church with uh, Jerry Falwell and Track Evangelicalism. And she started back with Charles Finney. And some of those Finney did uh, evangelistic work through this area. Uh, he's one of the foundations uh, for that. And she tracked it from him all the way from the Puritan movement through Finney, all the way up to, uh, to the modern evangelical movement, all the way up to its, uh, uh, the evangelicals' overwhelming support of President Donald Trump. That's what she, she tracks it in. It was a lecture that she gave, and she was tracking white evangelicalism. I went to the lecture myself and three, uh, two other men from our church. We went up in there, and they said, uh, when I walked in, they said, uh, uh, you know she's going to be talking about white evangelicals. And I said, yeah, I read her book. And they said, well, you're not white. <laughs> I said, I know. <laughs> so they said, well, what you doing here? And I said, I came in, up in here to see what y'all talking about. I invade meetings in our city, okay? If they're public meetings, open everybody, I go. I tried to go to a Ku Klux Klan meeting one time. <laughs> I did, I showed up. And the uh, guy stopped me at the door, he said, uh, may I help you? I said, y'all want to come into the meeting? How much is registration? He said, well, you know that this is a clan meeting. I said, yeah. He said, you black. I said, I know. He said, well, brother, he said, brother, we can't let you in here. And I said, well, why not? He said, because it's a clan meeting. So he wouldn't let me in. I tried to get in. Because I want to know what people are talking about. Because Jesus died for everybody. Look at y'all. <laughs> Life is exciting. If you just go on the adventure. So I went up in and heard her lecture, and she gave some of these points that I just gave you. And it was a marvelous time. That's the evangelical church. They have the microphone right now, and they are the voice for Christianity in our nation right now. You say you're a Christian? People believe that you're on the right wing. That's why I got on the right-hand side. <laughs> and they believe that you're an evangelical. Okay? I'm going to talk about offense in a minute. I'm going to help us. Okay, slide down to the lower right-hand side. Out of the evangelical community came the Pentecostal Charismatic community. Y'all still with me? Okay, Pentecostal Charismatic. You can write down 1900. 1900, there was a big outpouring. The major one that we heard about was in, uh, was also, was in Azusa in California. In fact, they wrote it up in the paper, Los Angeles people. Little black man, William Seymour, got out there, started praying. People started gathering, and they started praying at a little place in the, on Azusa, man. And let me tell you what, Holy Ghost fell in. Uh, finally, they had to move it, uh, move the place. And uh, miracles, signs, wonders, people were being baptized with the Holy Ghost. And Acts chapter 2 would be the uh, scripture you want to put by number 2. John 3, 16 and John 3 by number 1. Acts chapter 2 by that. And in 1900, that Azusa Street revival went global. It was called the Pentecostal movement. Basically, common people seeking more God and God sovereignly. It also hit in Topeka, Kansas. It hit in St. Louis, Missouri. But then it went global. People were filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues and began to operate in the gifts. Now, who were these Pentecostals? These Pentecostals were evangelicals that added on something. They began to believe in the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And many of them would use the term with the evidence of speaking in tongues. They would also believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation in the church today. 
So that was a departure from conservative and fundamental evangelical uh, doctrine. And they also uh, believed in the practice of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of uh, charismatic uh, gifts, charismatic gifts in the church services, Pentecostals. Now, Pentecostals lasted from about 19, there's a big wave, about three and a half years uh, of Azusa, and then it just began to explode, probably all the way to the next 40 years, about 1940. And then all of a sudden, in the last part, latter part of the 1950s, 1958, 59, it's tough to give a real round date, but we know by 1960s, God did another outpouring that was called the Charismatic Movement. It was out of the Charismatic Movement that much of the Word of Faith movement, though Dr. Hagen had been preaching uh, faith for a long time, way before the Charismatic Movement, back in the 50s, uh, it really just ignited somehow in the 60s. And the Charismatic Movement was when God poured out His Spirit upon all flesh. And, but these folks this time were part of the liturgical church, which is in your lower left-hand quadrant. And, I mean, Catholics were filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues, speaking to operate in the gifts. Lutherans, Episcopal Church, or the Anglican Church, as well as United Methodists. And inside of those churches, those churches called those renewals. Anybody ever heard of those renewals in those churches? They called them renewals, where the Holy Ghost just kind of sovereignly fell. People were filled with the Holy Spirit. Dennis Bennett was one of those that came from the uh, Episcopal Church. Uh, and then there was Lutherans that were there, Charismatic Conference. Uh, in Pittsburgh, Duquesne University was a major hub on the East Coast there where they had this conference for a year for years uh, where all these major people. That's where I met Marianne Brown at the Charismatic Conference. Baptists were filled. The difference between them and the Pentecostal movement, Charismatics and Pentecostals, Pentecostals were basically common people. But these Charismatics were well-educated, seminary-trained people from the liturgical church. They were baptized with the Holy Ghost. They shocked Pentecostals because Pentecostals used to think that the Catholics were babbling the great whore, the Antichrist, that the Pope was the Antichrist. And so when God poured his spirit upon them, they said, that couldn't be the real Holy Ghost. But God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Okay, some of y'all ain't saying nothing either, okay? Yeah, and so... And so it's interesting that people want to see the grace of God extended to some people. But not to all people. And God's grace is extended to all that call upon him. And so this is a charismatic move. Now, the charismatics were different than Pentecostal because Pentecostals usually you had a man of God or a woman of God that had special anointing like Catherine Kuhlman and some of those. Uh, but in the charismatic movement, they begin to tell the people that you have gifts that you can operate in. So they saw Sally and Joe and Dave, who didn't have any titles in the church but could operate in gifts. They released them to lay hands on the sick and to pray for those that had uh, various conditions, and God began to do supernatural things there. And the charismatic uh, movement still is in, uh, is in, um, is in uh, expression in the church today. And from it became many of our contemporary uh, churches that we have today. So you might want to might write down 1900 Pentecostal movement, and then around 1960 will be a good time where you can see the charismatic movement poured out, and it's a major expression today, and one of the fastest growing, and they believe that the Holy Ghost would, would come. One of the major marks of that church is, uh, is, of course, the Holy Ghost moving in services, uh, conventions, events, and uh, convocations, revival services, if you will. Now, 
over on the left-hand side, I'm just talking about the church in, in, in the United States and offense that comes from these four quadrants, a liturgical church. Liturgical church, lower left-hand corner, would be your historical church. This would be the formal church. It would be your liturgical church. It would be Catholics, Lutherans, Episcopal or Anglican church, as well as your United Methodist comes out about the 1800s and the Wesleyan revival movement. And this would be the, the liturgical church. It's formal. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a church that believes in preaching from a lectionary. So there's a lectionary A, B, and C scriptures in both the Old Testament, the writing, and the gospels and the epistles are read and studied every week, and they preach a common set of scriptures. Uh, they believe in the church visible. So in this church, it would not be uncommon to see collars. It would not be uncommon to see vestments. It would not be able, un, uncommon to not only uh, uh, be the church, but also to see the church. They would believe in dressing in uniforms so they're readily identifiable. Uh, they would believe in the symbols of the church, banners and symbols of the church, crosses, symbols of the church. They would believe in the traditions of the church in the liturgical church. They would believe in the sacraments of the church. And usually, for the most part, these churches are Eucharistic in their nature. They would serve communion every Sunday. And listen, the Eucharist would be the primary focus and high place of their worship. You can tell when you go into a liturgical church because of just furniture placement. Many times in evangelical church, you will have your pulpit above the communion table if the communion uh, table is in the middle of the sanctuary. In many evangelical churches, you have your pulpit in the center of the stage and the communion table on the side. In a liturgical church, you have the altar of the communion table in the center and the pulpit on the side because it's the body and the blood of the Lord which is major in that worship expression, whereas in evangelical and Pentecostal churches, it's the word of God that's major. Does that make sense? So there are books that are written on the theology of space, and sometimes you can tell a little bit about somebody's faith tradition by what's going on with the furniture placement in their churches. So they are uh, Eucharistic in their nature. They would serve communion every Sunday. Uh, they, they would say, uh, you know, often is often. So how often is often? Often. <laughs> so Jesus says often as you do this. So, so there would be communion served every Sunday in these church, and they would be Eucharistic in their nature in the church. They would have common prayers, common confessions. They would read creeds because creeds were a way when the church was being formed, especially during the dark ages, people were basically illiterate. They could not read. So why did the, the early church fathers establish creeds? Because they needed statements on who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the word of God? What is resurrection? And what is the glorious church? And so they would believe in creeds as well uh, in that. Um, this church's foundation, you could write beside number three, Matthew 16, where Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thou art Peter. Your name is no longer Simon, but thou art Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This church believes in the traditional solid, visible church. It's formal in its nature, and it's global. Most of the places, the expression of the church that we experience in the West is not the expression of the church globally. Most of the time when you go globally, there will be a Catholic church or an Anglican church or a Methodist church. Some of these historical churches will be the expression there. And they're part of our church uh, when we look at the church 
and they are very formal and they uh, build the church and they believe that their purpose is to maintain, maintain the traditions of the church. Fourth group of people is called Community Justice Church, upper left-hand corner. Y'all still with me? Okay, are y'all getting these notes? Now, if you miss something, just look on to your neighbor because this is a working session right here. So if you miss something, say, what did he say? Ask your neighbor, hunch him and tell him, tell me what he said, okay? Make sure their notes are up to current speed. Okay, upper right-hand corner, upper upper left-hand corner. This is called the Community Justice Church. Now, the evangelical church had a big divide during the time of slavery. Part of the Lord's church said slavery should be abolished. Part of evangelical said we need to maintain slavery for economic purposes. Basically, northern evangelicals and southern evangelicals. So there was a split between the evangelicals. Southern evangelicals, many of whom begin to call themselves Southern Baptists, said we need to maintain slavery because we have crops in the field and there's no way economically we can survive economically without slavery. Northern evangelicals said no, we cannot witness to these brothers, bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then enslave them, divide their families, and rape their women. So there was a divide in the evangelical church, and these folks became abolitionists, and many of the people that led the anti-slavery movement were Christians that said we cannot bring a brother to Christ and keep him enslaved. I know there's a lot of voices afoot in the African-American community that says they don't believe the Bible anymore because the Bible was used to enslave people. The Bible was also used to free slaves. Go back to the second book in our Bible, Genesis. Exodus is a book of liberation from slavery. And that book was read multiple times in black churches that were formed during slavery to help free from slaves. And the whole feast of Passover is a celebration of a liberation from slavery. Now, we do a lot of other things with Passover, but that's what God told them. Don't let the world ever forget that you were slaves and you need to remember it every year. That's what he told the Jews. So as a black man in America, when I talk about slavery, people say, well, you need to get over it. I said, that's not what God told the Jews. And I follow a Jew. His name is Jesus. And I said, they said that we should never forget. God told them to never forget. I'm going to make sure you don't ever forget. Okay, don't get offended. (laughs) I just follow a Jewish savior. But he saved everybody. And so I go go into these race conversations quite a bit uh, in in the region that I live in. They have conversations on race trying to, you know, uh, reduce the racial divide in the church and in the community. So I'm a part of some of these conversations in our city. So that was a divide. The evangelical church split the second time under civil rights. Because when Dr. Martin Luther King and the movement started for civil rights in about the 1960s, I'll give you that date, about the same time the charismatic movement was going on, civil rights movement was going on. Evangelical community again divide. Divided. Um, and there's some marvelous writings that are written concerning uh, that divide and um, one of the books that I read a few years ago uh, that I put in my book list uh, here let me see here if I have it here uh, was um, a book that dealt with this whole divide between the community justice and the evangelical church and um, 
this book uh, had to deal with uh, the Lamb's Agenda. The Lamb's Agenda is the name of the book, the Lamb's Agenda. Samuel Rodriguez, Samuel Rodriguez is the author. Samuel Rodriguez, the Lamb's Agenda. And what he does is he does this interesting dance between Billy Graham's message on righteousness and going to heaven and Martin Luther King's message on justice and taking care of people while they're here. And is the Lamb's agenda to take people to heaven only? Or is the Lamb's agenda also to take care of people while they're here? The name of the book is called The Lamb's Agenda, Samuel Rodriguez. Samuel Rodriguez. And he deals with the whole area of righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. The Lamb's Agenda, name of the book. Samuel Rodriguez is the name of the resource. And so there is this divide. What is a community justice church? Community Justice Church would usually use Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. There's also a scripture in the book of Amos that says, Let justice uh, roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Uh, and then there's also Matthew 23, 23 that says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You tie the myth, the knees, and the cumin. Matthew 23, 23. He says, This you should have done not to leave the others undone, the weightier matters of the law, he says, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Matthew 23, 23. Uh, this community justice group would also use as an anchor. I know I've given you a lot on this one. Uh, um, uh, Micah 6, 8, Matthew 23, 23, as well as they would use James chapter 2. For James says, if you see your brother that's hungry and destitute for daily food, and you just say to him, you know, be healed and be wealthy and be filled. He said, what have you done with him when you have within your capacity minister to his daily needs? So this group would believe in community development. This group would believe in community justice. This group would believe and would practice that their faith need to be lived out in the marketplace as well as in the ministry space. This group would believe that systems can be corrupt, not just individuals. Systems will be the corrupt, not just individuals. Now, let me do one other thing with these four quadrants before I go on to church earth from these four quadrants. The goal of evangelicals is to get people to heaven. And I've been an evangelical and I've been with evangelicals. And they told me your preaching is to save lost people and get them to heaven. Not too much concern with what happens to them on the earth. Just get them to heaven. That's the goal. Go down to the lower right-hand quadrant. The goal of the Pentecostal church is to have Holy Ghost-filled services. Don't matter how long it take either. Holy Ghost-filled services. Between 11 and 2 or 3, the Holy Ghost got to move. But between 11 and 3, now, some Pentecostal churches now between 11 and 1. And they want to see all nine gifts of the Holy Ghost move. They want to see people healed, the blinded eye open, the deaf ear unstopped, the lame leg healed, all between 11 and 1 o'clock. Now, they don't care what else happens. As long as the Holy Ghost moved, we had church. Okay, go over the courts, quadrant number three. In the liturgical church, the goal there is to preserve the institution. In other words, the church is the salvific hand of God 
in the earth. Therefore, we must preserve the church. So whatever we need to do to preserve the church, the institution, we're going to do it. Okay, you got that? Okay, is your, is your square getting pretty well filled up? Are you staying awake? Okay. <laughs> All right. Last, last quadrant, quadrant number four. The goal of that quadrant is to change the community. Change the community. In other words, we got to take our faith outside of the church and let it be manifested in the community. Most of you who read the Bible probably recognize that Jesus did most of his miracles outside of a ministry space, a synagogue, a temple, and a tabernacle. Most of Jesus' miracles were done outside of sacred space, synagogues, temples, tabernacles. I'm going to say it again. Most of the miracles Jesus did were done outside of ministry space, tabernacles, sanctuaries, and temples. Many times we want to get the results that Jesus got, but we don't want to do the work that he did. Because the work that Jesus did was in the community, not so much in ministry space. Now that does not diminish the need for doing the work in ministry space, but ministry space should not be the only place that we as men do the work. I went to a Walgreens, and I went in there to pick up a few items for travel. Walked by a lady, she's standing looking over all of these uh, peels. And I said, good afternoon, how you doing? She looked up, she said, Apostle Scales, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. She said, I'm not doing so good. I came in there to give me some medicine because I'm feeling terrible. And she said, and she said, oh, there it is. And she picked it up. And I said, well, what's wrong? She said, I got this splitting headache. I got chills. And I said, well, can I pray for you? And I laid my hands on her there at Walgreens. The lady said, and she almost fell out. I caught her and was holding her up. I said, you all right? She said, oh. Jesus, and then she, she kind of did like this, and then she touched her head. She said, hmm, I don't need this no more. Put it back on the shelf and walked out the door. You know what God wants to do? He wants to get us out in the marketplace. And you know what I'll be excited about? When I start seeing saints going to supermarkets, and they find people in need, and uh, you hear, we got a situation on our 11. You got somebody laid out in the floor. And you go out in the store and you find out somebody been slain in the Holy Ghost, falling out in the spirit, and got healed right there in the store. That's what Jesus did. So we have these four quadrants of the church. So get them to heaven, move into service, preserve the institution, change community. Now, as I begin to do my research, I began to uh, meet people, and I said, well, now, what church did you come from? And people begin to tell me these four quadrants that they came from. That's how I got to this. Are y'all still here? And as I begin to talk to them about these four quadrants, this is what people conveyed to me about the church church that they experienced in these four quadrants. I want to give you these, and then I want to give you some solutions because you are going to meet some of these people in New England, and I want to help you help them navigate back to the house of the Lord. Does that make sense? But I think we need to do diagnosis of the problem before we can help fix the problem. The evangelical, people that came from the evangelical church, here's what they told me. They said, conservative politics offends me. Conservative politics offends me. And some people 
when you're going through the church, you don't know whether you're at a political rally right now or whether you're in the house of the Lord. Because there's a mixture in the Western church right now between evangelicalism and being in bed with the empire. So they said to me, listen, too much conservative politics is offensive. Also, I'm not saying that these are right or wrong. This is just what people told me. Intolerance. Some people said that we're supposed to reach everybody, but they said, but there seems to be an intelligence intolerance to the LBGTQIA community. And they said, seems to be an intolerance now to immigrants, the poor, always uh, identifying them as lazy, drug pushers, uh, just different uh, view of those just intolerance. Christian nationalism, some people are offended by that. Some people believe that the United States is the kingdom of God. I have my questions about that. In fact, I disagree with that statement. I think we need a lot of work in the United States before we become before we can become the poster child for the kingdom of God. Okay, some of y'all said, mm-hmm. Some people said, amen. Don't be offended. Okay. Uh, lack of compassion towards the poor. When you read the Bible, go back and read the Bible from this vantage point. The Bible seemed to be written about oppressed people from the perspective of oppressed people. When, when, when John was reading, even today, Pastor John, I mean, Gideon, the Midianites were oppressing Israel. Most of the stories about Israel were times when the nation was being oppressed, from Egypt all the way to the end of their history. Jesus came from an oppressed society. And when you read the Bible, when I read it, it, it doesn't seem like the poor are the problem. And people from this quadrant told me, we seem to demonize poor people. It seems to be a values compromise. Because it seems like when we get our way, it's all right no matter what somebody's character in. Christian Zionism believes that Israel can do no wrong. Uh, and so some people are offended by that. And the place and the use and the view of women in the church. Evangelicals uh, many times struggle with the fact that evangelicals uh, say that and if you read statistics go back and do your statistical work the the southern baptist church is the largest expression of the evangelical movement in our country and their pastors are aging out right now in the next 20 to 30 years there won't be enough pastors to fill southern baptist pulpits because there's not enough people in seminaries as they're aging out when the average age of the pastor is 60 plus years old 20 years from now there's going to be a real crisis and there are more women in their seminaries now than there are men. So what are we going to do with the place and the use of women in ministry? That was offensive to some. It says uh, no sense or rejection of any community justice. And there have been lots of papers written. John MacArthur wrote an uh, interesting paper at the end of last year on, uh, on, on, uh, on justice and, um, and uh, the fact that it has no place uh, in, in the church today. Uh, justice. He's talking about community justice uh, there. And I think he called it social justice. I'm talking about community justice. But there's a big argument over this whole idea of justice. Should we be involved in community or did Jesus just come to take us to heaven? That's a struggle. And I quote and I say the names because these folks have written articles. You need to read them and draw your conclusions. So that's where the offense comes there. This church basically believes let God do it all. Pentecostal churches, when I talk to Pentecostal kids, 
uh, this was interesting. Pentecostal kids were offended because there was no theological answers to their difficult questions. Why do good people die? Why do wicked people seem to live long time and righteous people seem to die young? And there seemed to be no questions, no answers to those questions that young people were asking. So they became offended because people said, well, you just need to believe God. Just trust God. Are there some apologetic answers we can give the difficult questions in life? They were offended because there was overpromising but underperforming. And that just comes by people expanding prophecy way beyond the measure of their capacity. Promising people, if you came up here and gave me an offering tonight, that all your debts by the end of the year will be paid off. And by the end of the year, you're still struggling with debt. You know the manipulation that takes place sometimes. And I don't permit that in our church, and I know at faith, they don't do it either. Okay, an inward focus, stay inside the church. One of the favorite, uh, one of the favorite statements from my old Pentecostal church was, come out from among them. And uh, so they came out from everybody. They practiced world isolation rather than world penetration. Uh, sheltered lives. Some people said, I went to Christian school, I went to Christian uh, college, and I was not ready for the world that I live in. And are we preparing Christians to live only with other Christians rather than to live in the world that they are going to inquire? Trickery and manipulation, we've seen a lot of that uh, in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, and I'm a part of that quadrant right there. And so I have to own that because that's part of our expression, uh, people that I associate with, and I have to sometimes get them aside and say, hey, man, listen, I noticed that. I said, that's manipulation. Stop doing that. Uh, limited discipleship and leadership development. Just let the Holy Ghost do it all. People can be anointed but carnal. Ask Balaam. Balaam could prophesy, but he was carnal in that he wanted, every, he wanted money for everything. And so we need more than just the anointing. We need character, but very little leadership development. Immorality among leaders, and this immorality is just men with just multiple wives and now drug use uh, coming into that movement and just a lack of integrity. People just were thrown overboard and off the ship in a charismatic Pentecostal movement. Liturgical church. First thing on the top of the list, sexual scandal, sexual abuse, ritual with the, with no theolo theological explanation. Y'all see that? Because there's usually a theological foundation for some of the rituals that take place. But if it's not explained, people are just doing religious things, but without understanding. Friends, we now go to this one. Traditions without explanations, preserving the institution over individuals. In other words, people can be damaged by the church, by its priests, by its nuns, by its representatives, and they are, and they are uh, receiving uh, payoffs or what we call settlements that are closed settlements so they can't say anything about what happened to them, and that threw people overboard. Cover-ups, payoffs, secret settlements, and a deterioration of, uh, of trust and integrity. Community justice churches, they're not exempt because when I talked to people that came from that tradition and they talked about offense, they talked about the community over the individual. They said that there's so much community emphasis in our church that if I have a need in my personal life, that's not addressed. They said because everything is outward focused. Are you seeing that? So, so there's so much 
emphasis on justice. I don't have time to stop and pray with you for your individual need. Preaching justice exclusively, formalism, institutionalization, and uh, more uh, justice than uh, mercy ministry. Mercy ministry meets people's direct needs. And if somebody needs a sandwich, they don't need you to come down and say, well, I'm going to go down and change public policy so that we can make sure that the city has a food pantry. That may take years, and this person could be starved to death by then. Are you understanding? Mercy ministry will say, amen, while I'm working on public policy, I'm going to give you some food right now. Okay? And that's a mercy ministry. Rarely a personal redemptive message, because many times in this church, uh, communal salvation is preached. We are saved together because of community. You join the community, and therefore you're saved as a person as opposed to a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And views of sin are mostly communal versus personal. Most of the time, there's not personal sin, there's communal sin. And so if somebody is sinning, somebody's going to say, okay, what's the community problem that caused you to sin like this? What's the systemic problem for that? And so there would be that tension that would be raised uh, in those four quadrants. And these are things that I heard uh, from, from various quadrants. Now listen to me. In um, New England, you have all four of these churches operating right here. All four of them live next door to each other, worship next door to each other, and are present with each other. Here's some opportunities I believe that we have as churches represented here today. Some opportunities. First of all, some solutions to this offense. I've given some high-level headline definitions for all four quadrants. I've given some more detailed issues of offense, solutions. The church must first admit when it's wrong. If we're going to help people navigate through offense, when the church, the institution is wrong, an institutional representative must say we are wrong. In the 1990s, mid-1990s, there was a lot of reconciliation conferences held. A lot of foot washing done. You know, people were repenting from the sins of their fathers. I want to repent for the sins of my fathers for enslaving you. I want to repent for the sins of my father for hating you for enslaving me. And we washed feet and took communion. And you know what? All those clean feet walked right back to our silos and kept doing what we were doing. And we never became community after all that foot washing. I believe that we need to admit that we're wrong, but I believe we also need to address the hurt, have conversations with the injured, and we must also must be, uh, there must be adjustments to prevent further and future uh, failure in the faith community. What we've done in our city is we begin to have conversations on issues, conversations on uh, theological divides, conversation on racial divides, conversation on gender divides, so that we could work together to better the church and the community so that we could speak with one voice. And yet we understand that we might have divergent opinions on various issues. Help people through their offense, trespass and pain. That becomes the solution. You see, I really believe that we're called to be uh, ministers of reconciliation. I put in a, a long passage in your notes. You see that 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Because if the sources of, commu- uh, of, of offense, church offense, is the church, both evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic, liturgical, and community justice, I need us all to hear what Pastor John just preached. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new what? A new creature. Old things are what? 
And behold, all things are become and all things are of God. What has he done? Who has he reconciled us to? How? By Jesus Christ and has given us what? The ministry of reconciliation. To it, God was in the world doing what? Where? Reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed us to what? The word of what? The word of reconciliation. Now, here's your assignment. Now then we are, for who? As though God did beseech us, we pray you in Christ's stead be what? Reconciled to God. For he hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. Be put in right standing. This text talks about the new creation reality, that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto himself, that he's given us a ministry of reconciliation because the great command, the great commission is going to all the world, preach the gospel, or make disciples of every creature. But the great command is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, then love our neighbor as ourselves. If I'm reconciled to God, I must move on to be reconciled with my brother. So he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. God was in the world reconciling the world unto himself. He says, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He's committed us to a word of reconciliation. I really believe that God wants someone to be a peacemaker and help to make peace between all of the groups of the church. And then once we have peace between the groups of the church, then are the quadrants of the church, then we can make peace in our community. Jesus says that our oneness in John 17 is our community witness. He said, Lord, make them one that the world may know. That I am in you and you are in me. And we are in them. One of our community witnesses is our oneness together. That we're able to work it through. We are ambassadors. We are diplomatic officials of the highest order who have been sent into the earth to represent our kingdom, the community as God imagines it, in the earth. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And it says that we are to be proclaiming, and this is what Paul proclaimed, be reconciled to God. And if I can be reconciled to God vertically, then I can be reconciled to my brother horizontally. If I can be reconciled to God vertically, I can be reconciled to my brother horizontally. But that means I have to deny myself. I have to take up my cross and I have to follow him. And be reconciled unto him. That's how I maintain my righteousness in Christ and maintain that new creation reality. Here's, where, here's some directives I'm going to give you in terms of to-dos. You see, when I'm talking about to-dos, I believe that you and I, we ought to exploit opportunities to reconcile people to God and to one another. Exploit. When those doors open, and when the Holy Ghost opens a door to reconcile one someone to God, and when the door opens to reconcile people to people, let's exploit those opportunities and be ready to work on that opportunity. We must exploit opportunities in the community to reconcile uh, groups. I had the opportunity to sit down between two turf wars in our city. And there are two, uh, they, they called themselves gangs. I think that they were gang wannabes, if you will. 
They were just uh, mimicking what they had seen in other cities. But, but nonetheless, they were having turf wars. They were shooting each other, young men. And the only thing that divided these young men was one street. They all went to the same school. One street divided them. On that side was this one. On this side was this posse. And both of them called themselves posse. We had a Poindexter posse. And these, are, uh, and these were the uh, Sullivan posse. Or the Sawyer posse. Had a chance to sit down with both the leaders. And then some of their lieutenants. And then some of their people. And say, man, this makes no sense. This, this neighborhood is not that big. Can we work together to make the neighborhood and the community safe? Y'all scream about black uh, men getting shot by police. I said, y'all shooting each other. I said, you know, the first brother killed his brother. That was Cain killed Abel. I said, can we stop this madness? It's been going on 6,000 years, 2,000 years from Christ to Abraham, Genesis 1 to 12. 2,000 years from Genesis 12 to Matthew chapter 1, Abraham the Christ. 2,000 years almost from Christ to now. 6,000 years we've been doing this, brother killing brother. Let's stop this madness. And friends, when I find groups that want to be reconciled, can we be peacemakers? Don't be afraid of these young guys in the street. They just don't have fathers. Malachi ends with the problem. In the last days, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of children to the fathers. Unless I come and smite the earth with a curse. The earth is being hit with a curse because of fatherlessness. And they need the voice of the fathers in the community to say, come and be reconciled to each other. We must exploit opportunities to reconcile people to people. When I say people to people, that's ethnic group to ethnic group. Friends. Jesus said, be careful how you entertain strangers, for some entertain angels unaware. The word strangers in New King James is the word international. God tells Abraham, you be careful how you handle the stranger, the international that sojourns through your land. You know why? Here's your vantage point, Abraham, because you were a stranger. Remember, you were not born in this land. I brought you into it. That's what he tells Abraham. I believe that some of that Abrahamic covenant ought to come on us. We ought to try to reconcile people to people. When I was in India the week before last doing missionary work for a week. It's interesting that my host, Joshua Emmanuel. I asked him about, I said, what were the British and the French like when they had India? He said it was oppressive. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, sometimes people have told me that they wish black people in America could do what the Indians have done. I said, what is that? He said, they seem that, that, they have, that we have pulled ourselves up and many of us have educated ourselves and we work in technical fields, etc." And he said, and they said, why can't black people be like you guys? And he said, I'm beginning to tell them because he said, because when we kicked the British and the French out of here, we had a homeland. Black people in America don't have a homeland. And he said, so I begin to have to let my white brothers know, my ang- he called them Anglos, my Anglo brothers know that there's a big difference between people and people. And friends, we need to reconcile people to one another. I found that there were Somali youth in our, in, in our city that were oppressing the Spanish youth in our city. And I said, both of y'all are strangers in the land. 
See, y'all doing oppressing each other. So we had to bring them together. We started a Boy Scout troop at our church. Boy Scouts. And I got Somali youth, Spanish youth, and youth from Raymond Christian Center in there so these young men can learn that they can get along. Some are Muslim, some are Catholic, and then there's those who are from Raymond, followers of Jesus Christ. And I said, we're going to learn that we can get along. The good news is all the scoutmasters are from our church. So now we're starting to have that spirit influence inside of them. But we're teaching young men you can get along. And we need to exploit opportunities when people want to reconcile the people. If we can start it with them young, maybe to grow into their DNA so that by the time they get older, we can make a difference in our community. We must become peacemakers. I close with this statement because Jesus said this in the preamble of the Constitution of our kingdom. The community is here matching us. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We must become peacemakers. I don't want to just start a riot every place I go. I know sometimes when I speak like this to people, it's like trying to get a drink out of a fire hose, out of a fire hydrant, rather. And, uh, and I've seen people get mad. I've had people threaten me. Some people call me non-Christian. They just were offended. So I've had to apologize and say, forgive me for the offense, but I did the best I can to articulate the truth as I see it and as I understand it. But I want to make peace. What can I do to make peace? What can I do to make peace? Blessed are the peacemakers. Someone who's a reconciler, somebody that can stand between two opposing forces and bring them together. That's a reconciler. Christ grabbed hold a sinful man and a holy God. It brought us together. He is the prince of peace. He's my example for leadership. And so what I say may become confrontational. But what my heart is, is I want to grab hold of folks that don't even like each other. And say, in Christ Jesus, since we all know, name his name, in all of those quadrants, we name his name and bring us together. So that the world may know that God sent Jesus and that he's in us. And we are in him. John 17. If we can do that, then we can start ridding ourselves of some of this offense. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a moment at your table. Turn around. Okay, you got three minutes. That's all I'm giving you. (laughs) Turn around. Everybody turn around to your table. Now I got four quadrants here. Everybody see those? Most of you at tables with brothers uh, from your church. First of all, I want you to talk about where is our church? Okay, this will be interesting because you'll probably hear a diverse conference. Where's our church? Are we evangelical? Are we charismatic, Pentecostal? Are we liturgical? 
Are we community justice? Where's our church? Are you somewhere? You might, you might put your circle, maybe a blend of some of those, okay? Find out where you are. Have that conversation, okay? And locate your church. And then after you locate your church and have some conversation around that, only other thing I want you to do is uh, pray that, that, that you might be able to be a peacemaker, that we can do things to make peace, okay? To bring and eliminate offense. Okay, go ahead. Start talking. Take it. You got three minutes. Go, 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 go. <laughs> have some conversation. If you're at a church with multiple members from different congregations, talk about where you are, okay? <laughs> It'll be interesting to hear the views. All right, you're coming down to your last minute here. Get everybody engaged at your table. Father, I pray now for all the men that your word says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the children of God. Father, Jesus had people offended from the community, from a core leadership team, and from a crowd. Them being too familiar became a source of offense. His very doctrine and teaching as a prophet became an offense. And Father, just many just became offended because he broke outside of the boundaries that they thought that he should stay in. Your word has said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Though people were offended of him, he took no offense. So, Father, great peace have those that love thy law, and nothing shall they be offended. Father, help us to be the peacemakers that Jesus was. He grabbed hold of your hand, a holy God, and our hands, flawed and failed men, brought us together, therefore making peace. Help us to be peacemakers in our communities. And whether we're in family space, ministry space, marketplace, or cyberspace, let us be instruments of your peace. Father, also help us to strengthen each other's hand. Father, when we meet brothers and sisters in our community of the church called the kingdom of God, the community as you imagine it, whether they're evangelicals, charismatic Pentecostals, liturgical, or community justice people, help us make peace inside of your house. Your house is a lot broader than our house. So help us to make peace with those who are in the various quadrants. Father, who are doing your work for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name that you'll do great and mighty things in the midst of us because you are the mighty God. In Jesus' name. All God's people say it. Amen. 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 My, go ahead. Amen. Last homework assignment for you, and this is homework. I ask you to locate your church. There's a little text in the Bible that says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. In the book of the Revelation, Jesus was in the middle of the candlesticks. If Jesus is in the middle of his church, where should your church be? Just a thought. Hey. <laughs> Do a bit of homework and find out.